You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culture Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, R.A. Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Lee Stein. Uh, Lee, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Lee Stein. I'm the author of the novel Self-Care, which you may have heard of, and the book of poems, What to Miss When, which comes out on August 10th, which may be out as you're watching this. Yes, yeah, so it probably will be. Um, and I'm holding the cover up to the camera. And it's, it's a great cover. What, what, is the, um, what is this work that is, that is recontextualized so it's on the cover? A, it's a Waterhouse painting from the early 20th century of the Decameron, which is a 14th century book about the plague in Florence, Italy, that was like a big inspiration for this collection of poetry, which is also set during a plague, <laughs> i.e. the plague we are all con- living through right now. Yeah. Um, okay, well, well, thanks for coming on. And we, we did an episode, I guess, about a year ago uh, about your novel Self-Care, which I enjoyed. And then so I, when I heard you um, wrote a book of poetry during the pandemic, um, I said, uh, would you be interested in coming back on to talk about it? Um, so thanks for coming on. So, okay. So the, yeah, well, I guess, well, let's start with the Decameron. So I've actually, um, never read that, but I guess, um, I've heard about it a lot. And so it's sort of like, um, a somewhat, it's like a Canterbury tale style thing where you have a bunch of different people telling a bunch of different stories and the framing device is that they're like these nobles in Florence or something who there's plague. And so they, retreat to the mansion up in the hills and, and are telling each other stories in order to pass the time. And are there actually a hundred or is it? Yeah, it's like a hundred over the course of 10 nights. And it like has a lot of, I had never read it either. Cause I saw it as one of those like hard books they assign you in school, which I immediately reject. <laughs> but, but the plague is just like in the intro where Boccaccio says like, you know, all the poor people couldn't afford to leave the city. So they just drank themselves to death and the rich people fled to the country, to their villas. And I was like, how timely is this? <laughs> So these 10 young people go to this villa and drink wine and tell these like body fables to one another to pass the time. And so that was kind of my framing device for this collection, but except it's, you know, me inside my home watching love is blind on Netflix. But I, <laughs> I, I use these um, poems about pop culture, about film as these contemporary fables that we're telling each other. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And so this is, I mean, this is the first, like piece work of art or I mean, f- poetry, fiction, nonfiction, somewhere in between, I guess. But, you know, first thing that I've consumed that was written, you know, during the pandemic about the pandemic, um, a reaction to it in, um, sort of almost close to real time. So that is interesting in itself. And, you know, I was thinking of, especially early on the pan- pandemic, people were like, you know, are they going to make movies about this TV shows? And I was thinking like, who would want to revisit, this time, like, we're going to, you know, we want to uh, move past it. But since I guess we're still in it, it's, it's you know, in some respects, it's hard to say. So how did you, um, how did this come about? How did you decide that, that this was something you were going to actually publish? So the story behind the book is that in early March 2020, I was frustrated with how much wine I was drinking. And I decided to stop drinking for 30 days and see what would happen. And 11 days later, I wrote a poem for the first time in about 10 years. I thought I had lost poetry forever. I thought it was gone and it had been such a big part of my identity and my early writing career and then it just vanished. And so I think the combination of the lockdown, we were suddenly all inside, all our plans were canceled, you couldn't go anywhere. 
and the fact that I was no longer drinking, there was like the part of my brain that was like, should I drink tonight? How much should I drink tonight? If I drink tonight, am I going to drink tomorrow? What am I doing on Friday? Like all those questions I had to go through were gone. Mm -hmm. And then I started writing poems. So I can read the first poem. This was the first poem I'd written in like 10 years. Um, this was the beginning of the whole book. So sure. this is called um, Think Starlight. Think containment. Think caseload. Think of your parents. Think of Lily, who taught you the etymology of stanza, a kind of stopping place, the room where we self-quarantine. Think of all the faces you've known by hand, the curve of your lover's skull, how no one ever admits they wish they'd worried more, so you keep your panic on you at all times, like a passport. The paper reports the nameless score, tally marks on the wall of a white stanza, where women in green speak a language you don't understand and decide who deserves the breathing machine. Think starlight. It took so long to touch us. We trusted we were spared. So this was the beginning when we were getting these reports out of Italy that there weren't enough ventilators in Italy and doctors were having to make decisions about who would live and who would die based on age or, or comorbidities. And we were just watching in horror in America thinking no way could that happen here but meanwhile the virus yeah the virus was making its way to us and so you have a you have a notes section at the end that gives some inspiration or um, references to some of the, thing, the things that inspired some of the poems and so this is from a uh, a woman who was quoted in the times a doctor dr carter Mecker, or actually, I don't know if this is a woman or a man. Um, by the time you have a death in the community, you have a lot of cases already. It's giving you insight into where the epidemic was, not where it is. Think starlight. That light isn't from now. It's from however long it took to get here. Um, so was it like, was that, was the phrase think starlight a resonant cue that got your poet brain going or? Yeah, I guess I should thank the New York Times because it's like I read that article and the metaphor was there and I just took the metaphor and I made the, made a poem um, but to your point a minute ago, I also wanted to say, like, if you told me, Lee, do you want to read a novel set during the pandemic? I'd be like, hell no. <laughs> so part of the challenge of marketing this book is like, I know, you know, a book set during the pandemic is not a very sexy proposition. But um, someone someone on Instagram said that reading this book was like laughing with a friend after the end of the world which is the best way I can pitch it. So I wrote a book about something we all endured. We're still enduring. It's still ongoing, but I do have a sense of humor. The poem I read was very somber, but there are some other very funny poems in the book and I, I can't help but like laugh through the darkness. It's how I, it's how I survive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you made me think we're talking about who would want to read a novel about the pandemic. Um, when, you know, in like month one or something, I was, I, it occurred to me that there, uh, you know, there was no like, novel of the um spanish flu or whatever we decide to call it now um the great influenza and i was like googling around because you know there's so many novels are like this is a world war one novel and then the there's no great pandemic novel and then i found there's a woman who you know um coincidentally like with in like a year before had published an academic study of the spanish flu in literature and um i tried to get her to come on the podcast to talk about it, she was too busy, and um, which I guess makes sense. But but also it was like, it was more like there was m sort of minor references and other things that were set during that time, and maybe it's in um, I think it's something in Mrs. Dalloway, and maybe like like there's a couple other ones. But yeah, it was like there is no say there's no like all quiet on the Western Front 
of of the um, that of that pandemic and. But I remember reading an interview with her, and that's where I learned that the the Yates poem, "The Second Coming," was written right during the flu pandemic, and his his pregnant wife nearly died. So that turning, turning oh, in the widening gyre, the center cannot hold. That was in a moment like this one. So so there was a oh, pandemic that's interesting. Poetry. And you have and so you have a lot of different inspirations for different poems, and one of your poems is has that exact title, right, of the Yates poem, the yeah, Second yeah, Coming. The second- um, and yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that actually. And I, even I, I studied that in college and yet Yates had this bizarre also sort of like understanding of like history of the universe and these like cones, the gyres or whatever, they're like intersecting with each other. And, and so he, he had this like weird mystical side to him. Um, okay. So how did you, um, h- how did you decide that like, this was not just, something you were doing to pass the time and that this, this was something that, you know, was a coherent work or was worth (laughs) putting out into the world. Because I, you know, during the pandemic, I felt almost no creativity whatsoever. And I I tweeted, which is barely, which is, you know, like 0.1 on the creativity scale or something. But (laughs) I, I, you know, there were people I knew who were like, you know, writing humor pieces and just like, you know, they were like, finally I have time to concentrate. Whereas I was just like, I have, no, I have no original thoughts. I'm just like wandering, you know, wandering around my neighbor, listening to podcasts while no one else is outside. Uh, so how did you, yeah, where did you come to decide, like, this is, this is something, this is a poetry collection? Yeah, well, I think I've always written poems for like my friends. Like I never write anything for myself. I'm always writing for an audience, but that audience could be like one person. So I was just emailing these, like I would email them to my agent. I would email them to like my book editor for self-care. I would email them to my friends um, and people were like, keep sending, they're like, if you're writing more, send them to me. Like I, you know, at Penguin who published self-care, they were like, we're sharing these in the company Slack. It's like the only thing getting us through. <laughs> um, and that was really sweet. So that kept me going, just knowing that there was like one or two or three other people reading these. And then it was my agent's idea. Uh, she was like, you're writing a book. And I was like, I'm writing a book. She was like, yeah, you're writing a book. We're going to sell the book. And I had mixed feelings about this because I almost didn't want to make it commercial because I was like worried, like, would I lose the, you know, the creative arts and craftiness of it by making it into a book. But that's what happened. She sold it to Soft Skull. And I said, can I keep writing them through the election? Because to me, it felt like I don't know the end of the story until I know what happens in November. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, you have to turn it in September 1st. (laughs) So I wrote the whole thing in six months. So it was daunting, but the container of it, it was like a six month project. I've never written something so fast. It was like totally like the concept was totally there. And I think poets often struggle in when they're writing a book because they they write all their poems separately and then they have to ask themselves what order do I put the poems in Mm -hmm. but in this case it was very easy they're almost entirely chronological once I figured out the Decameron thing like that was my framing device so this had like a very like artificially imposed um like deadline and structure to make it into a book Mm -hmm. that's it that's interesting yeah so and there's some there's as things go on yeah there's a sort of chronological I got the sense of a chronology there are things that I can link to events that happened last year and, um, and yes, but that's, you know, ending it, put uh, closing off September 1st, you know, the, the lead times and publishing are, book publishing are kind of crazy. And, um, but so in some ways this is like, maybe like first, well, I mean, first half, first third of the pandemic, you know, sort of 
thing, so you can imagine other right. works. But there are times when I was like, well, by the time this comes out, is anyone going to be talking about the pandemic? Because I thought, <laughs> of course, the vaccine's coming. And once we have the vaccine, right. it's going to be over. Yeah. Ha, and so, ha, ha, yeah, ha, ha, yeah. So that um, that hasn't happened. Uh, yeah, we still, we're still still stuck in here. Although it's not, you know, the, the, the lockdown um, was obviously different and there hasn't been an equivalent of that again. And so we, it's funny you said arts and crafts and you made me think like there are a lot of people who started doing like um, knitting or baking sourdough bread or doing some other sort of like handicraft thing, sort of like to pass the time, you know, cross stitch or something or doing puzzles even like jigsaw puzzles. Uh, did you see it sort of like, sort of like that? Like even maybe a self care kind of <laughs> activity. Yeah, this was definitely my project. Like this was definitely the thing that I worked on every day. And to me, it was like, I was like making a little time capsule so like I was collecting all these all these moments, whether in real life, you know, what what was the grocery store out of when I went to the grocery store, but also in my life on the Internet, which is where where I go for so much of my material, just just scrolling the feed. Mm-hmm. I remember I have this very vivid memory early in the pandemic of like watching CNN on the couch, but being on my phone and thinking to myself, nothing you're saying on TV is like as up to date as what I can get on Twitter. Like there was such a lag time. All the interesting commentary was, you know, if you could follow the right health experts on Twitter, you were getting much more, um, much faster, more up to date information than from Aaron Burnett. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's for me, like, you know, not everyone is online as, as you and I are, Thank God. but I've, de- <laughs> I've definitely written this book for like, you know, the, what I would call the laptop class, you know, who who are extremely online, who, who are privileged enough to be able to work from home during all this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another thing when people talk, you know, early on when people talk like, you know, the pandemic novel, the pandemic movie, you know, a lot of, if you were, if you were not a, an essential worker, then a lot of it was things are not happening. And so, you know, usually in a, you know, a novel has a plot, um, poems, a po- poem can sometimes have a plot, sometimes not. Um, yeah, but then if you were if you were to write a novel of you know uh, March April May twenty twenty, it would have to be highly internal and not a, and not all be having or maybe be set in a hospital or something or a grocery right. store and that would be a different kind of story. Um, so I don't know a, a poem you know is well I I, I can't define a poem but um, it's <laughs> you know it, it's you don't need something to happen, you know, I guess it, it, it can just be uh, describing a feeling or, or something like that. So right. maybe that is sort of the ideal form for at least this perspective on, you know, lockdown and, and so forth. Um, so some of the, some of the poems are named uh, and inspired by uh, movies that you saw, that you watched, I assume, you know, on streaming. So you have a Tiger King one, Yeah, this was part of the project, too. It was like, what movie could we rewatch that I could get a poem out of? Like, Back to the Future? Because, like, the the, in in quarantine, it's like we lost track of days. It was like, what day of the week? Everything day was the same. You were still wearing sweatpants. It was like, so I watched a lot of things about time, like Back to the Future, Palm Springs, the new Andy Samberg movie. And Groundhog Uh, Day, yeah. And Groundhog Day. Um, Yeah, so how did you you think about that, and why did you decide to name like title you have you know the king of staten island <laughs> which was that um john apatow movie that came out last year or saint almost fire how did why did you decide that you know that would so, be the title and that would be an inspiration for one poem 
Yeah, some of them were like, what was everyone watching? Like, everyone was watching Tiger King at one mm-hmm. point, and I didn't, I almost didn't write, and the poem I wrote isn't even about Tiger King, but there was this moment, Um, it was a Saturday, and nothing very juicy had happened lately, and then there's this thing that came out in The New Yorker where Lori Moore said that she found Trump's voice reassuring, and it was just like a blip on the on the feed, but for one Saturday, everyone was mad at Lori Moore. And I thought like, oh, we're just like the tigers in Tiger King. We're like these poor, starving tigers that are just like waiting for someone to feed us expired meat from Walmart. Like we need our <laughs> our controversy of the day to keep us going. Uh-huh. Um, or Love is Blind, which was a Netflix dating show. Um, it, it felt like that was the only thing we all did together is like, what did we all stream together? Or what did we all get mad at um, <laughs> in terms of politics together? Mm-hmm. Um and then the movies were just like older movies that I thought had resonance um, to the moment that I wanted to rewatch mostly, or they were new movies that people were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk about also some of the literary? So I guess, you know, you mentioned Laurie Moore who provides the epigraph, if that's the right term for that, for the Tiger King poem, but you also have the Yates, which we mentioned, you have a Mary Oliver or a poem is dedicated to her or after written in the, after Mary Oliver. You talk about that. Um... Yeah, Mary Oliver has this famous poem, Wild Geese, that starts like, you do not have to be good. I once went to a yoga class on a beach and it opened with some with the teacher reciting this poem. It's just like a very popular poem. And so I kind of pride myself on being like a poet of the people. Like I I, <laughs> I, I, I want to write accessible poetry that people get that they don't need like a higher education to understand. And so the... The allusions I make to other poets, I hope, are to other poets that people are familiar with. So they feel like they're, you know, they're in on the joke. I don't want people to feel excluded. So I reference Mary Oliver. I reference Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman, um, Keats, Yeats, the Romantic Poets. Um, so I, I'm trying to pick references that that um, give my audience like a wide umbrella to be to be under. Mm-hmm. And how do you um, how so? Would you call your writing free uh, free verse? How how do you and, and when you're writing, how do you decide the the like shape on the page and and stanzas and things like that? Um, for, for which which you don't have a consistent stanza style, or I, I at least correct me if I'm wrong, you're not writing you know uh, sestinas or haikus or other you know sort of um, classical poetry forms. Um, how do you yeah? And, and why, yeah, how, I... about, how about rhymes? Did you think about rhymes? <laughs> No limericks in this collection. Um, yeah, I'm not a formal poet. I'm, I don't attempt a sonnet. At one point, when I was talking to my agent about selling this, I was like, I was like, oh my god, like a series of sonnets. It's called a crown of sonnets. Hmm. Like, and Corona is crown. And I was like, oh my god, should I write a crown of sonnets? And I was like, <laughs> I can't write a crown of sonnets. Like, not only am I going to write a whole book of poems, I have to teach myself how to write sonnets. That seemed like too ambitious. <laughs> Okay. So I'm not a formal poet, but I'm also not, I think when people think, I also don't write in blank verse, which is kind of like a sonnet, but it's unrhymed. Um, but um, free verse sounds so loosey-goosey. So I think like I'm more in between because some of my poets, poems are in couplets or tercets, mm-hmm. three lines. Um, that to me gives me like a little bit of structure to work within because so much of the fun of writing poems is like deciding where to break the line so that you can make a joke or so that you can create a double meaning. And so I don't write prose poetry. That, that to me is also too um, formless. So I like a little bit of form, but not too much form. Mm -hmm. I'm a Libra. 
I don't understand the reference, but hopefully some people in our audience will. Um, okay, so that's interesting. India, do I mean have you ever written rhy- rhyming poetry? Um, not that, since I not was a, like a wee lass mm-hmm. long ago. Um, yeah, I actually, you know, the first, the very first episode of this podcast back in 2015 was, was with a uh, friend of mine in college who was a published poet and uh, English PhD, and we talked about, you know, um, like the common complaint about modern poetry is like, well, they can't, it doesn't even rhyme. Um, and <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, you know, the well. Yeah, I, I'm trying. I'm going different directions. Well, okay. One, so there's one piece in here which I was surprised to discover. I guess I, I played like the uh, the very tiniest role in helping to inspire a poem, and so that is um, one of the, one of these poems was inspired by an episode um, of Meaning of Life TV, which is the sister side of Blogging Heads, and it was an episode that Bob Wright um, hosted with a physicist or a philosopher who was writing about named Preston Green, who was writing about this idea of simulation theory, which is kind of like, what if all of, what if our reality is like sort of a video game that some higher being or consciousness or aliens or something created, and then that's sort of a a well-known philosophical idea, and like the Matrix is sort of playing with that, but then Green had this idea that like, um, if if we like sort of pursue this philosophical idea too far, then, and it is true, then like our overlords will see that we figured it out and then like the game will be up and they'll like restart or turn off the simulation and then like existence as we know it will end. So we should, we right. should it's almost like dangerous to think about these things. At least that's, that's how I remember this happening. And, and so I was tickled to see that, uh, but can you maybe read that one or, or at least uh, talk about that one a little bit more? Yeah. Yeah. I'll read it because I think you set it up perfectly. Um, simulation theory. Before all the gyms closed, I ran on the treadmill and listened to a podcast about the likelihood we're living in a sophisticated simulation, one among many. Our lives a research project run by our own brilliant descendants to find out how history might have turned on different axes. What if Hitler won, etc.? You already know which what if we're in. It would be dangerous to search for glitches to prove the simulation is real, says Preston Green. Imagine a clinical trial. If your subject figured out she's on the placebo, you'd have to kill the trial. We don't want researchers of the future to annihilate our reality, but Preston, what if that's what they're already doing? The longer I live indoors, experiencing the outside world through screens, the more plausible the simulation theory seems. It's somehow easier to imagine a sadist in 2420 pushing a button that says, add plague and see what happens to protest than it is to watch our demagogue hold a Bible like a block of government cheese and admit there's no master plan other than to threaten more violence against the people marching to stop it. I'd like to speak to the manager of this simulation. <laughs> I'd like someone to tell me how to prepare for what comes next. Um, so I, I like that one a lot. And then when I saw that, um, you know, in your notes at the end, that that one was, um, inspired by a Meaning of Life TV podcast, um, I just enjoyed that even more. And as far as I know, I don't. Maybe I'm sure there's other poems that have been inspired by podcasts, uh, but first one I've ever read. So Let's claim I, it as the first. Let's claim it. <laughs> probably someone wrote a poem about cereal, or, or, or mm. you know, whether Adnan was guilty or something like that. But um, yeah, so I enjoyed <laughs> I enjoyed that one. And it's you know, thinking of like yeah, what you know, if there are these more powerful beings in some 
like higher level of consciousness and they do want to restart the whole thing, you know, just like if they couldn't just press the on off button or something, you know, maybe like what's been happening over the past <laughs> couple of years would be their way of trying to wrap, wrap this whole experiment up if it failed. And yeah. And, and that idea of like, where, you know, reality has become strange and we're in, you know, who is, or another thing that I heard often during the pandemic or during Trump, the Trump years was like, you know, like the writers are sort of like running out of ideas or like, it, it, this is too cliche. You know, the, the author of reality is a hack is a joke I made a couple of times on, on Twitter. And <laughs> um, yeah, so it's like so many strange things were happening and, and how can we make sense sense of this? I guess poetry is, is one way. Um, how did you decide on the overall title of, of the collection? Mm. You know, at first I was going to call the book viral experience with kind of the play on virality on the internet, but also the, the virus itself. Um, but, but then weeks went by with me in lockdown inside my house. And I realized like, this wasn't going to be about the virus. Like it isn't like a collection of 30 poems about the coronavirus. You know what I mean? It's about, it's about how we lived through it. Um, in those of us who could stay indoors. And so one of the poems was called what to miss when, and one of my readers was like, that would actually be a great book title. And I was like, oh, yeah, it is, because it's kind of, it's nostalgic. You know, it's like, what did you miss the most? What did you find yourself missing? But it's also like a clickbait title, like, what to miss when? Like, oh, tell me, tell me what I should miss. Um, right. Yes. Yeah, so it, it seems like a play on, like, you know, like 10 things to do this weekend, sort of. <laughs> right, like the New York Times section, they started doing, they replaced the travel section with at home where they said, you know, here's how to make a paper crane or here's how to make sourdough bread. Um, but the, I want to say one other thing about the poem that I read about. It's like it's like the book itself is a time capsule. But I think each of the poems are a time capsule, too, because it, that has like the pod, the last podcast I listened to at the gym before the gym closed. Then it has that image that people probably remember of Trump holding the Bible for that photo op. And it was right. so awkward. It has like, let me speak to the manager, which is a reference to like the Karen discourse. Mm -hmm. It has a reference to the protests that were happening last summer. So it's from a very specific moment in time. And like the conversations I would have at home with my husband, like we just, the, the simulation theory thing is just now one of our running jokes. It's like, I find it comforting to imagine I'm, I find it more comforting to imagine I'm in a simulation than to, to face that this is actual reality. Right. And if you're in a simulation, there is, there is someone in charge running the simulation. That's what I find comforting. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Which also, I think, get, has, is sort of the, that same um, instinct is sort of what has encouraged the um, growth of like QAnon and other sort of conspiracy theories. Like it, it is somehow more comforting to think that there's a hidden hand controlling things, even if that's like a malevolent hand, um, than to think like, oh, like you know, it wasn't like the deep state helped Trump get elected. Like he just got elected, and there was like a weird, <laughs> a weird thing that happened. And it's not that he has this like secret plan. It's just he's like bumbling around every day because he's, he's a moron. Um, yeah. So, um, let's see, is there anything else you want to say about the work? Are you still, are you still, did, did this like satisfy the poetry itch? Are you still writing poems about what's happening now that? No, you know, I lost it. Like, that's it. I finished the book. It's gone. I haven't written a poem since I finished the book. That's oh, wow. it. Um, yeah, it was just like, yeah, a crazy thing that happened. <laughs> um, well, so congratulations on the book. Um, Thank you. People should check it out. I'm holding it up to the screen again, and it should be out by the time this posts. But we have a, a second thing that we want to talk about, and this is <laughs> this is a piece 
that you published in Airmail, which is the uh, subscription newsletter that Graydon Carter started. Um, is that correct? That's right. And, it's called and he's the former editor of Vanity Fair. That's how most people know him. Yes. And also, he is a nemesis of former President Donald Trump. And um, one of Trump's most famous tweets from before he was president was about his feud with Graydon Carter about his restaurants. Do you know, do you know that? Um, do you remember no, that No, I don't think I know about that feud. Well, I think they were, you know, since they were both sort of New York City media figures, you know, since the 80s, and they hated each other for, for whatever reason. So sometimes um, Trump would just tweet things, nasty things about Graydon Carter. You know, this is like back in 2012 or something. And he had, so they had, he had one tweet, which I think I might be able to recite verbatim, talk about poetry. I mean, Trump did have the sort of knack, especially when it was 140 characters of stay, stay, stating things in his own particular way. It was something like, um, uh, oh, what was the first word? It was something like, um, oh, sissy, that's what it was. Sissy Graydon Carter of failing Vanity Fair magazine has a problem. Um, his, uh, was his food, re- something like his food restaurants, Oh, no. Uh, sorry, sorry. Here I have it. Okay. Uh, Sissy Graham Carter, Failing Vanity Fair magazine. Um, uh, in, in failing uh, food restaurants. So he has this like, weird thing like food restaurants. Um, food restaurants, right. One yeah. of those. Um, <laughs> it uh, has a problem. His VF Oscar party is no longer hot. Um, and, and so that was, you know, that's one of those ones that even before Trump entered the political arena, people would reference and... I got it wrong a little bit, but, and sadly, you know, it, the original has now been erased with the rest of Trump's account, one of like the few negative aspects of that. But anyway, so that's a weird segue to say that you're a piece for her hair. Wait, mail. isn't this funny though? It's like the, you're like the oral historian of like tweets. Like these are now, they can only be passed on from like one person to another orally. Yes. And I even had a Twitter joke at, that I tweeted a couple of years ago that would be like on my deathbed. Like I will like say that phrase to, you know, my grandchildren, they'll be like, but, you know, we don't know what you're talking about, Grandpa. Like, you know, why Why is this Oscar party, why is the VF Oscar party no longer hot? Um, but, yeah, so it, it's entered the oral the oral tradition at this point. You know, the, the origins of poetry, you know, the, the, uh, uh, Homer, the Homeric oral tradition. Right, right, right. Uh, but anyway, the, this article you wrote, Sympathy for the Girl Boss, is in some ways a, um, it's related to the novel that you published last year, and that we talked about on this show, um, self-care and you're writing about, (laughs) there there it is. And, uh, you're writing about this cultural trend of, um, a a female, you know, business person, uh, you know, female founder, female founder of a company sort of has, uh, uh, you know, explodes towards the top and is on top of the world. And then it all comes crashing down. And there's sort of a glee. Uh, people are like celebrating this person on the way up, and then something goes awry, and there's a glee of tearing them down. Yeah. And um, and so some of these people are. Um, there was just a piece about this like enamel cookware company. That oh, Ray Jones. Yeah. Yeah, had was not super well run um, <laughs> internally. I guess you could maybe include the woman with the blood testing company. Um, although, oh, Theranos. Yeah, Theranos. She's more, I mean, she's not, she wasn't really a girl boss, but, you know, she definitely had a fall and people celebrated that. And then the woman, the man repeller came man down. Repellent. So, who yeah. Are, yeah, I'm trying to think of who, who are some of the other. Yeah, so 
So I wrote this piece that went viral last year for Gen Mag, which was a vertical of medium. And it was like one of the top 10 stories of the year 2020 on that website about the end of the girl boss. And I kind of traced her ascendancy. It, it like kind of comes out of lean in and Sheryl Sandberg, but Sheryl Sandberg is a Gen Xer, but it's like millennials took this and ran with it. So it was like this combination of self-empowerment feminism, like, like go girl, like yes, queen feminism and um and social justice because they their companies would have these like f this like feminist mission or feminist branding especially the wing which was co-founded by audrey gelman and lauren kassan so the wing was like the the queen of them all and they had this like this extremely public um pr crisis and downfall and audrey gelman ended up leaving so i wrote last summer about like what happens when you make feminism a part of your brand, your customers who are buying the brand because it's feminist are going to say, but are you feminist behind the scenes? And then when you're not, they're going to take you down on social media. So that piece went viral. A lot of people were really into it. I got a lot of messages. I met a lot of people through it. And then my editor asked me to write a follow-up. And the follow-up she asked for was like, a, where are they now? Like, what are these girl bosses doing now that they left being girl bosses? <laughs> and I just thought, like, I don't know that this is interesting like, and, and I didn't want to mock them because they'd been like publicly disgraced. Like I didn't want to write another piece, like making fun of them for what they were doing now. So I really struggled with it. I didn't know. How, first I, I, I put off for six weeks. I said, no, I'm not going to write the piece. I wasn't going to do it. Then I got like some tips about, you know, and I started following down this, like, I just started following the path, but I realized like what I wanted to write about is how this became a form of entertainment for us during the pandemic, that we were all participating in this because whether I was ever a member of the wing or not, I can go on Instagram and shit post them. And I can say like, where's your accountability? Like, how are you an intersectional feminist? Blah, blah, blah. But how come I get to say that? I'm not a member of the wing. And I even said like, oh my God, like, am I sympathizing with these white women because I'm a white woman? And that was like horrifying to me. But then I realized I'm sympathizing with them because I used to run a conference in an online community, which is what we talked about last year, mm -hmm. the problem of moderation. I know what it's like to run an online community. It's the most thankless job in the world. And then your community turns on you and says you're a piece of shit. <laughs> and so that's what I wanted to write about. So I wrote this piece that was 3,500 words long. It was supposed to come out in January. Then the riots happened. And I thought like, oh, well, that's more important than my girl boss piece. Weeks went by and the place that was supposed to publish it folded and went under. So then I had no home for the piece. So this piece has been on a journey and finally airmail published it. They cut 2000 words. So I guess no one, no one will ever know my true thoughts. Because <laughs> was the stuff they cut more. So it's a, yeah, you talk about this personal aspect related to this Facebook group that you were running called, was it called binders? Yeah. Which, grew out of the the 2012 election and it was uh professional women's networking kind of i mean i, I don't want to uh speak inaccurate inaccurately of it but it was sort of it all came crashing down and, and part of that inspired your novel um and yeah so yeah, what was the I, stuff that was cut more the personal stuff or or more um Oh, I almost cut that. I begged at the end for them to keep that in because my point to say that was to, my point for me to talk about my own experience was People have criticized Audrey Gelman for failing at for-profit feminism. They're like, you tried to be a feminist and make millions of dollars and you screwed it up. But I was held to account for failing at not-for-profit feminism. <laughs> I made no money. I'm not a girl boss. I don't have stakes in a multi-million dollar company. And they still came for me. So the question at the center of it is like, you know, we're criticizing women for not doing feminism right. And we can't even agree about what doing feminism right would look like. 
And we don't have the same standard for male founders. Male founders can do whatever they want and no one's saying you're not being you're not being like a true ally. Yeah. But so, women are held to that standard. Yeah, so there's definitely a double standard when it comes to um, women founders who are seen as somehow representing more than just what you know a, a normal company is, which is just a way to like maximize profit for your investors and shareholders and like produce a product or something that you know people will pay for. Um, yeah, so it, when a woman when a woman is at the helm, then sort of this other narrative gets layered over that like they're doing more than just you know selling widgets or something. It's like about empowerment, and I think I mean part of that narrative. I, I assume some of the, some of these fa- female founders sort of like play that up on the way up, where they're like, "This isn't just about cookware. This is about <laughs> family or whatever the fuck." Right, right, right. So, right, that's part of contemporary marketing, right? It's like, what's your what's your mission statement, right? It's not like you said, selling widgets. Like it's like selling widgets for a good cause. Or like, yeah, we're donating a free widget to people in Africa who don't have widgets. You know, with every ten sold, that kind of thing. Um, so it's sort of like, yeah, there's some somewhere between actuality and bullshit of the narrative of the company that it's serving more than just a capitalist purpose. And then, so then once that, like there's like a crack in that, then I don't know, suddenly the the supposed hypocrisy hypocrisy is exposed. It's Um, so easy. Like, yeah, it's so easy. The hypocrisy, it's like, it's just so easy to find. It's like, it's like the easiest game you can play at home and we all play it. And, and to what end, like whose whose lives are improving because we're taking down these women on the internet. Right. I mean, you could say that about many things that happen on the internet. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's like destructive to seemingly no purpose. And people get, so these people generally weren't like canceled in the, you know, they weren't accused of sexual harassment largely as, long, as far as I know, but it was more like, yeah, you ran, you ran a company that supposedly was devoted to f- feminism in addition to making money, but like you didn't hire any black people and you were mean to your employees and you accepted funding from, you know, venture capital, BlackRock that also, you know, invests in the tar sands of Canada or something like oh, that. Oh, it's not even that. It's not even that good of a critique. No, the <laughs> other thing that's really interesting is like the these companies are founded by millennial women. They're glamorous. They're beautiful. And then their employees are excited about working for these women. Like it's going to be a feminist utopia to go to work every day. Like there's this mismatch in expectations between the employees who are expecting that the workplace will be even more ethical and virtuous and, and more pink and more velvet um, than any place they've ever worked. And their bosses that are like, this is a startup. Like, are you prepared to hustle and grind? Like, this is a startup. And so when the employees are disappointed, they go to the press who knows that these stories do well, like that great Jones story in business insider, great Jones had like six employees. Like this is not a big company. I never, yeah. I had never heard of it before when people were talking about Twitter, like, Oh, they, you seen this great Jones story. I don't, I, that's a street in New York. I didn't know anything right. beyond, Man beyond that. Keller had six employees. Like these aren't huge companies, but you get one person to talk and you get a second person to talk and you get a journalist. That's like, have I got a great story here or what people love this stuff. I mean, I'm a sucker for it. Business Insider, that that great Jones story, I had to pay $12 to get access to it. And I was like, I got to be part of the discourse, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, I, mean, I, I think maybe I, someone, I think I got like the Samizdat version of that because I did not pay for that because I didn't care enough because I didn't even know what it was. But I, I feel like I did read it or at least a summary of it. But yeah, and so, I mean, there's always like, you know, any failed business, there'll be like behind the scenes stuff that went on that in retrospect is silly or the people seem like morons or they made an obvious mistake, or they, 
you know, it w- there was like a scammy aspect to it. Whereas if something is a success, then all those things get like swept under the rug and, you know, we don't hear about, well, I guess, I mean, we have heard, you know, we know that like Mark Zuckerberg's original version of Facebook was like swiping the photos from the online face, like Facebook at Harvard. And it was like a hot or not sort of thing. And so right. the sexist element to it. Um, so we do know that we do know that stuff, but um, yeah, when it's, so, I had someone say to me, like, but there's so many women like running businesses that are doing well. Like, why don't you tell that story? And I said, like, but what's the story? <laughs> like, where's the drama or the tension or the conflict in that? Right. And and also a lot of these brands, it wasn't like a woman in Wisconsin opens like a flower shop and is successful in her local community or something. It was like very online and the glamour aspect of it was kind of played up, especially in I guess the great Jones case where the women were like in vogue or, 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 or something, they were like pictorial fashion shoots with the, with the founders who are attractive, you know, thin white women, um, right. Who the type of people are often photographed and, you know, in gowns or whatever. Um, so yes, yeah, so, I mean, it, it makes sense in a way that, you know, the, especially the, there's a natural human tendency to take someone down who you think doesn't deserve their success or whatever. And then the internet like hypercharges that because that's a lot of what, social media revolves around. Uh, but you know both that, like, there's no... Okay, so we know... So Girl Boss is a term, and I guess there was, like, a a book or a, a Netflix series or something named Girl Boss, but, like, there's no boy boss. And who are... The boy bosses are, like, Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Bezos, the WeWork guy. Adam Newman, yeah. Yeah, so those are sort of the boy bosses. And totally. some of those people have helped, like, ruin the planet. And other ones, like, I guess the WeWork guy is sort of a... You know, he's sort of been laughed out of town, but, um, yeah, no one is, I don't know, like, that, yeah, the, just the way those success stories or downfalls were play, played out in, in the cultural narrative was very different because you didn't have this, like, women have to represent more than just right. running profit-making enterprise kind of thing. Yeah, and an interesting case study is Ty Haney, who is the millennial founder of this um uh, like athleisure brand called Outdoor Voices. And she was one of the people that was like written about in this BuzzFeed expose and she was like out, but she actually came back to her own company. So I, I'm not sure her role now, but she's definitely in the C-suite at her own company. She came back um, and she gave this interview where she said, you know, the, the common narrative is that it's very hard for women to raise venture capital, that it's much easier for men. And she actually says it was an advantage that she was a woman when she was raising venture capital because she was doing direct to consumer so there's a relationship between these products that are direct to consumer and the rise of the girl boss because these girl bosses, these women, could build these devoted online fan bases that they could sell directly to, like away luggage or Glossier makeup or outdoor voices leggings. And Ty Haney benefited from all that. But the downside to that is that then, then you have that community that can turn against you. You built it all up. And that's how you got investors to be interested in you, by building it all up. And they just turn. Right. So that so you you mentioned this essay that I'd heard of before called Trashing the Dark Side of Sisterhood that is from 1976 in, in Random Ms. Magazine. And can you talk about how that you see that playing in? Yeah, this is like I first heard about this essay during some binders drama and my co-founder said, have you ever read this essay? And I was like, no, I've never seen this before. And I was like, oh, my God, this is what's happening to us. So it was during the the women's movement in the 70s, and Joe Freeman wrote this essay. I think she wrote it under a pen name, Jereen. Only later did she come out with her real name. Um, but it's about 
women taking down other women in the women's movement, icing them out. So it's like you feel like you're part of the community. You're going to the same meetings as everyone else. But suddenly there's, you know, a new committee or a new event and you aren't on any of the list to be invited to that. So they just they don't confront you directly. They don't tell you what you did wrong. They just totally exclude you and they trash you behind your back. Um, and she says, you know, while the something like, uh, you know, while the system or the patriarchy seems distant or far away, one's sisters are close at hand. So we, we lose sight of what we're really fighting for when we just take down each other. Um, it's something that she, she's interested in and that I'm interested in. And that's what I, you know, it's why I wrote self care, why I wrote this novel. When people ask me what my novel was about, I would say like, it's, it's women taking down other women in the name of being good feminists. Um, it's not, it's not fighting against the patriarchy. It's fighting one another. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the first time I had heard, seen a reference to this essay was the New York Magazine piece that Michelle Goldberg wrote seemingly a thousand years ago, but probably it was only like 2014, something called Twitter's Toxic Feminism Wars or something along those lines, right. which was a very prescient piece looking, looking back at it. I remember at the time people were like, oh, this doesn't happen. But that was um, that was one that sort of saw what was coming in terms of like cancel culture and other such things. Um, and I, I put, you know, scare quotes above cancel culture. But um, why do you think... Okay, so is this sort of a universal tendency that just plays itself out in some, with some like minor variations in spaces predominated by women, or is this something like is there is, is there something different about spaces that women um, predominate in that encourages this particular type of behavior versus like a company where it's mostly men and they're not doing this sort of thing, or they're doing it in a, in a way that comes out differently, even though it's sort of the same essential impulse. Yeah, I'm of two minds about it. On one hand, I would say like, I, I wouldn't put it all on women because I think it's like any community that's formed around a shared identity. That's why we see this happening in like online yarn communities, which I also joke about in my poetry book. But it's like anything that you come together around the same thing, then you then you see the narcissism of small differences. Like, oh, but you're in the yarn community and you're a Trump voter, but you can't be in our yarn community. This is a yarn community. <laughs> right. Um, There's a, there was a big New Yorker piece about this yarn website yes. that's very popular and the sort of the, this thing playing out there. Yeah, and the, the assumption of the politics of the people that belong to the yarn con community. But I also, I do think there is a gender piece to this because I, I do think women are more afraid of being excluded from the group than men are. I think the group membership, the standing in the group, in my experience, I find that's really important to women. And I felt it myself when I was in the group. I was like very afraid of being excluded and not saying or doing or thinking the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, so I've long had the idea that like all, all sort of online communities tend toward toxicity. And that's both like an inherent dynamic of like groups, but also things that happen online where you know, you, you know, you're not talking to people face to face, so you can slag them or tell them to go fuck themselves much more easily than if you're actually like meeting every week in a, you know, the knitting room of you know the local yarn store or something. Uh, so, so there's that, and yeah, it's like, you know, the like, you know, the trombonist uh, online community eventually, like, you know, people are like, oh man, these trombonists are like, you wouldn't believe the things that happen, like when they're what, like. <laughs> And you know, in trombone.net, but um, but also, <laughs> I do wonder if it's like, um, yeah, just the the way you know, being I'm thinking about like being, yeah, being left out. There's it remind me, there's this old, you know, this like shunning is sort of a you know, something that exists in most human communities, but there was this particular form of it 
that um, I only learned about actually through content moderation. So the, on the on V Bulletin, the old form software, there used to be something called something like sending you to Portsmouth or something or some the name of some British town, and it was this idea that was adopted from like like British naval academies or something, where when someone violated the rules, a form of collective punish or collectively enforced punishment was we're just going to ignore this person, treat them like they're invisible, don't respond to them. You know, if they sit down at the table, everyone just gets up and leaves and you make them like a non-person within the community. And then like eventually they go nuts or they drop out or something. And so there's the version of this that existed on V Bulletin was you can take a particular poster's account and you apply, so you send them to Portsmouth or whatever, and then they can keep on posting, but no one sees it uh, except themselves. They don't realize that they've been sort of like, it's sort of like shadow banning. But um, so they keep replying to people trying to troll them and no one no one else sees it. This seems very useful to me. Yes. But the so question I, is, who would have the power to do that? So it's the moderator. You know, the person, so this gets back, gets back to this whole thing about, you know, the perils of moderation. And, um, and yes, yeah, so that was one way. And then, so some people, I think we actually did do this a couple times with some particularly noxious people. And then some, you know, most people eventually are like, wow, I'm not getting a rise out of these people anymore. I'm just going to go pursue some other interest. And some people just continue shouting into the void because, the, you know the exp- the self expression was more part of it than than getting you know than trolling people getting a reaction. Um, but yeah, th- so that so that thing seemingly originates in like the all male you know naval academy of like eighteen hundreds Britain. Um, but yeah, the idea of of being excluded from the group is obviously universal. But yeah, I guess it, maybe it plays out just when there's like some idea of like sisterhood or something. You know, it's like we're we're all in this together. And then if you are on the outs, it's like stings even more than just like if you, you know, like if your men's club fires, you know, kicks you out or or something like that, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like someone who disagrees with me would say like, but we have to hold these women accountable. The word accountable is used so often, right? Like, but these women should be held to account. They should be accountable for their actions. That's fine. But like, that's not what we're doing. Like, what would that accountability look like? Like, we aren't giving them a chance to try again. Um. We're just saying, please leave forever. Because, um, like, the Leandra Medine Cohen man repeller stuff, like, that just continues. She just did that whole podcast and everyone made fun of her. Um, and she tried to talk about, she tried to talk about her awareness of her privilege and all this stuff. She tried to um, speak to her critics and then she was just mocked relentlessly. So, so what, what would be, the, and so now she's going back to writing about dr- getting dressed in clothes, which is what she wanted to do all along. It's like, just let her be. That's what she wants to do. Like, wh- why do we have to, wh- why does she have to become Glennon Doyle? Like, why does she have to become a social justice activist on Instagram? Does every white woman has to become Glennon Doyle? That's a nightmare scenario for me. <laughs> and who is Glennon Doyle for people who don't know that name? Did oh we talk about her last God. time? I, I no, that. I hadn't yet written my piece. So oh, Glenn- oh, you did write the Glennon Doyle piece. Okay, yes. I- mm, yeah, Glennon Doyle is a memoirist. She's kind of like an Oprah figure or a Brene Brown figure. Um, she she wrote this very popular memoir about her marriage, but during the promotion of the book, she realized she was gay, and she ended up um, getting together with this um, soccer player, Abby, Abby Wambach. Wambach. Yeah. Um, and so now she and Abby Wambach, you know, they are raising her kids, and um, which is fine. I have no problem with that. But she is... 
I feel the piece that I wrote is about how basically she like runs her own church on Instagram. Like you're either in the Glennon Doyle church or you're, or you like hate it, but she doesn't inspire weak feelings in anyone. She inspires very strong feelings. And so her church online is like a, it's like a mix of like feminist jargon, like watered down Christianity, like self-help platitudes. And some people really go in for this stuff. Um, but she also has raised a lot of money for charity but it's all like it's all to benefit Glennon Doyle, which is why I'm like making a sour face. <laughs> right. Um, OK, so one thing that was absent from the piece, and I'm wonder, wondering maybe if this was in the longer version or something, was there, you know, there's sort of been a general turn against capitalism at, at large, especially since 2016 and sort of the emergence or reemergence of socialism as an active, you know, political current in America. And so when you're tearing down, so in, in some respect, there's, so there's some people who want to tear down the girl bosses because, um, you know, maybe their products are bad, like the enamel chips off on the cookware, or they're, they're not really sh showing a commitment to intersectional feminism. But then there's plenty of other people, and there's more of these, t a greater percentage on Twitter than probably in the real world. But you definitely see this more and more who are like, you know, you raised $10 million in Series A funding? go fuck yourself. Like you're just a fucking capitalist. This money is like blood money. I'm exaggerating, but um, you know, why would you want to be a girl boss when you're representing the interests of capital against labor, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And so there's plenty of people who hate Jeff Bezos for his, you know, um, peccadillos and the fact that he you know decided to go to space, but also just like, you know, he's the richest man in the world. And why, why should we, you know, why should we, like this guy, like he's, he's on top of the capitalist hierarchy that is exploiting the labor of hundreds of thousands of, of other people. And, you know, in his rating, treating his workers like shit, et cetera, et cetera. So do you see that as being part of it that we're just, you know, like lean in feminism, it almost seems like belonging to a different era where like people want to lean out now, especially at, like post pandemic, like people don't want to go back to work. People don't want to grind and hustle. Like, how could you grind? Are you, you should do like a, you need to do like a whole episode on the like I'm so tired. Are you going to do an episode on that? <laughs> I mean, I'm so tired. That's definitely related, but it's sort of like, and I, I remember thinking this especially during the early pandemic. The people who were like on that grind, on that hustle, what what were they, what were they doing when suddenly you're stuck at home and you can't really do anything? Like, I guess you could still get up early and like exercise and stuff, but like, what what are you grinding for? And what is sort of the point of it all? And yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I definitely there's definitely like a anti-capitalist mood in certain sectors, uh, and you know, like AOC is maybe some further iteration of like girl bossery, but you know, she is she wants to you know tear down <laughs> you know uh, seize the means of production or whatever. Like, what, what what do you think about this? Yeah, yeah, I think that capitalism is definitely a part of this, and you could definitely argue that like girl, a girl boss is like an avatar of of capitalism. It's it's very hard for me to untangle the the threads because it's like, I mean, as much as I'm like sympathetic to like socialist ideas, I the reality is like, are we just gonna? Like, do women have an ethical obligation to like opt out of capitalism, and so then it's just gonna be the boy bosses that are left, you know? So I'm torn about this and I'm, and I'm torn about this also as like a competitive person. Like my, my favorite poem in my own book is the poem I wrote about Michael Jordan and the last dance um, miniseries on ESPN. Like mm -hmm. he's so competitive. He's such a grudge holder. 
he works so hard. He's a workaholic. And like, I admire him. And then I think to myself, but I'm not supposed to admire him because I'm not supposed to be a workaholic. I'm supposed to push back against girl boss culture and push back against hustle, hustle culture. But part of me is like, when I read these, I'm so tired tweets or whatever, I'm like, fine, take a nap. Cause like, I'm going to go for it. You know, like <laughs> I, it makes me competitive to read this stuff. Uh-huh. And I'm, and that just because I'm an old millennial. That might, yeah, that might be part of it. And there definitely is, I feel like there's generational differences, especially as people who are like maybe about to enter the workforce during pandemic year, you know, as they age up, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, the fact that you brought, I mean, so bring up Jordan made me think about um, the um, the podcast um, Blank Check with... I don't know this one. Okay, so it's a movie podcast. It's mostly, usually they're reviewing, they're talking about old movies, but sometimes they do new ones. And so they did... Uh, believe it or not, an almost three-hour episode on the new Space Jam movie, and they all they all hated it, but they did have some interesting analysis. And so that one of the main things they talked about was the difference between Jordan and LeBron, as you know, pop, the two arguably greatest basketball players of all time, and mm-hmm. what Jordan represented in the '90s when he did Space Jam, and what LeBron represents now when he did his own Space Jam. And so, you know, so LeBron is much more. So you know, Jordan is like the greatest competitor of all time. I, I mean, yeah, it seems like he just had to win about on er- everything. And if you like screwed him over just a little bit, yeah, he was like waiting to stick it, stick a knife in your back at some point. So in some ways he seems sort of like an awful human being and he, like a huge asshole, but undeniably one of the best athletes. Um, he got the job done in, in American history or global history, I guess, uh, you know, for the 92 Olympics, but, um, but also, and so LeBron has all these other aspects where it's sort of like, he wants to be like a mogul, he wants to be sort of like a boy boss. He is always hustling. He has all these side things. He's producing, in addition to Space Jam 2, like, he, he's, like, as a production company, he's doing all this charity stuff. Like, did Jordan ever do charity? Jordan, like, did commercials and sold shoes and and was the best basketball player, you know, in the 90s. And so that's, it is interesting to think about, I guess, you know, Jordan is Gen X, I guess, or, or maybe very young boomer, and LeBron is a millennial, like oldest millennial. No, I guess he, no, he's a little younger than I am. So he's definitely a millennial. And Mm -hmm. yeah, just think about how things have changed. And anyway, they, they relate it to like the first space jam actually be like in retrospect being pretty good. And then in the new space jam being totally awful. And in part, it's like, because in the first space jam, Jordan, um, recognized and play, played off of the, the bad things that happened to his life. Um, leaving NBA to try to play baseball and failing. And also the murder of his father. Yes. Whereas in the, New Space, apparently LeBron is sort of treated like the greatest guy ever. And the only conflict is that, like, he wants his son to be a basketball player instead of being, like, a coder or, or make video games, even though the kid is clearly a genius video game maker who creates this whole world that they end up getting sucked into. So it's it's totally stupid. But it is interesting to think about the changes and how, yeah, these two, these two basketball icons as, um, you know, avatars of the generational changes and yeah, how we view... Yeah, how we view, like, capitalism, because, you know, Jordan famously said, like, why he didn't get involved in politics, because Republicans buy shoes, too. Right. Whereas LeBron, you know... That's very boy boss. Yeah, so he's like, you know, we're just making that money and selling as many shoes as possible, whereas LeBron took a stand against Trump and called him a bum, and, yeah, he's just much more... It seems like he is being, through his choices and also just what this culture expects, he's, like, weighing in on all this stuff, and so he... Yeah, he's, you know, talking about Black Lives Matter and, and so on and so forth, whereas Jordan was just, like, the greatest athlete and making the most money through endorsements and McDonald's and, yeah. and uh, Looney Tunes and so forth. 
Anyway, we'll include a link to this <laughs> this episode. It is interesting to think about. Um, so I don't even know how we got off on that. <laughs> no, but it makes me think, like, do public figures even have a choice anymore? Like, d- d- does LeBron have the choice to be like MJ? Or does he have to be? I mean, his politics have to be transparent. There's there's too much on there's too much on the line financially, but also uh, socially. That that do we have this new expectation for our public figures now? That's that's like, yeah, a relic of our own time. Yeah, and so I I assume LeBron actually does think Trump is a bum, but it also like it was part of his brand that he came out anti-Trump. And then I, I think, didn't Trump tweet something mean about LeBron or something? Maybe when I'm he, sure. you know, lost the files or something like, you know, called him a... You're the oral historian. <laughs> well, I'm sure Trump, I mean, Trump is commenting on everything. I'm sure he tweeted about LeBron at some point. But um, yeah, it just, you know, it's, it is sort of, there's a similarity there to the staff of Manderpeller feeling like they have to weigh in on the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and then if they did a bad job in their statement, then like it becomes a story and people are like resigning and, and so forth. So I don't know something about the, you know, Jordan was both, you know, the most, one of the most recognizable humans on earth in the nineties, but also like somewhat out of remove and mysterious, like this godly athlete. And then, you know, he wasn't broadcasting his thoughts into our phones in the nineties. Whereas like now it's, it's expected that you have to weigh in on everything. And, you know, the Skittles corporation needs to say that, you know, we support black trans women or whatever the fuck. And that's, so that, I don't know. It's definitely different than it, than it was um, 20 or 30 years ago. And I guess the internet yeah. is the, is the reason for a lot of that. Um, but do, okay. Do you, so you, I think you mentioned either in the piece or something you wrote about the piece that no one was willing to go on the record. No girl bosses or former girl bosses were willing to go on the record with you, although you may have talked to some of them on background. Yeah. Um, where do you, I mean, do you see, where do you see this phenomenon going considering that a, you know, 26 year old woman with hustle or something right now, maybe either shares the anti-capitalist ideology of a lot of other young people or sees that maybe it would be not in her interest to found a company selling whatever, you know, whatever sort of thing, because that's not what young people want right now. They just want to you know, look at TikTok or, or something like that. How, do you see any, any trends in the in the future in regards to this? Yeah, I, I wonder if women founders are going to be scared scared to go big. Like, I wonder if it's going to be more people starting smaller companies. You know, like I I have my own company. It's just me. Like I'm a coach. You know, and people pay me. But like, I'm not going to scale that. I'm happy where I am. So I wonder if there's going to be more of that, like solo entrepreneurship. Um, I wonder, you know, one of the people I talked to in the piece is Naj Austin, who's the founder of, of, a, of a wing-like co-working space for people of color in this new internet um, platform called Somewhere Good, which is a great title, by the way. But, but again, it's like, a, it's like an online community built around identity. And so I worry that that's the thing that keeps getting repeated over and over again. I don't know that her identity as a black woman is going to give her protection against this kind of... Um, girl boss takedown, you know, it, um, the same thing could happen to her. So I don't think tweaking the identity characteristics is like our way out of this. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about this person and this online effort? That's sort of a trying to make a different form of a social media network. Yeah. So her dream is like to make a Google, like that's how big that, that she would like to make this. 
But the difference between Twitter or Facebook and what she is doing is that you'll have to pay to be a part of it. So right now, social media is free for us to use, but it's supported by paid advertising. And so instead of going that model, she's trying to do a new model where you pay to be part of a community you really want to be a part of. And she thinks that'll encourage people to be more civil and to make stronger connections between people. But it's still going to be organized by community, or I'm sorry, by identity. I think the example she gave me when I talked to her by phone was like, like if you're like a single Asian mom in Brooklyn who loves roller skating, like you can find other people like you, which is cute. But like, that's what the internet has always promised to do. So I wonder about that. It's something I used to wonder about all the time with binders. Like if we charged money for this, would people be behaving this way? Do people have more of an incentive to be civil um, if they're paying for the service? Because I just see like online community is so trendy. Everyone's like, but what's the community piece? You know, podcasts. You know, I heard Megan Dom's Megan Dom's uh, podcast this week on The Unspeakable is just a monologue. And she talks about how she's going to build a bigger community for her podcast. Hmm. So there's this push towards community, but um, the problems of moderation remain. And I don't know that. And, and you know, when I talk to Naj about the girl boss thing, she says what her differentiator is not only her own race, but she says she has a more intersectional team from the very beginning. And so she sees that's a problem with girl boss. So are these Gen Z founders that are coming up that are young and kind of coming up? Are they going to have more intersectional teams from the beginning? Maybe. Um, is that going to protect them? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's like our, our worst instincts online are just rewarded by the algorithms. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the way things have played out has, has not maximized, you know, human flourishing and so forth. That's clear. It's, it's helped, you know, people, it's helped the people who founded the companies and I guess advertisers and then, you know, malevolent people like um, Donald Trump who are able to take advantage of, of this sort of thing. And so something I hope changes. So, you know, people have new ideas of how this could possibly work. I, you know, hope for the best and, you know, it'll hopefully replace the algorithmic ad supported, you know, attention, attention economy sort of stuff where you're just trying to make people angry as a way to drive engagement. That's all very bad. And um, yeah, I mean, if you are, if you are charging people, it will, I think weed out, just the trollish types who are just doing it for the lulls and like getting a rise out of people. But then there's are there are people who, you know, think they're doing God's work when they are like casting, castigating someone else or trying to evict them from the community. In fact, it's probably the majority of people like think they're doing what's good right. ultimately, you know, when <laughs> in, you know, picking, picking fights online and saying like, you're not a real, whatever, whatever. So I don't know. Um, it might. The internet may have been a mistake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> overall, actually, did I? I can't remember. Uh, last year when I was doing these, I was I started asking, asking people the question like, if you could like Thanos in the Avengers movie, snap your fingers and all of social media vanishes, it can't come back, and um, you know, email and websites and Amazon that still continues, but like Facebook and Twitter and all, all that other stuff disappears. Would you would you snap your fingers and? Uh, and wipe out social media? I think last time I said no because so much of my career has been online, but I think I'm going to change my mind now and say yes. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think like living through the pandemic 
because I've always been someone who's like defended the internet, you know, like before it was cool to meet people online, like I was meeting people online. And so I've always been like a defender. And now the pandemic has really shown me like it's not enough, like nothing brings me more joy than like having the opportunity to like go in person somewhere and meet someone I was DMing with. Like that's the goal, not to Zoom with them. Like I, I, I need to go to the next step. Right. And certainly, you know, vaccine misinformation, you know, pandemic misinformation and QAnon sort of things, you know, those all, you know, we've seen a lot of the way that social media incentivizes, incentivizes those bad actors over, um, you know, just the spread of disinformation and so forth over the past year. Um, speaking of meeting in person, you are doing some in-person events and I, I will, I requested tickets. So I think I will be attending at least one the thing you're doing in Brooklyn. Uh, so maybe we can <laughs> meet, oh, good. We're meet in person. Real life. Uh, so that, you know, instead of just talking over zoom or whatever. Um, so are you, so you're, you're doing, to you're, take our relationship to the next level. Yeah, let's, let's do it. And okay. So you're doing some, you know, a COVID friendly, I'm doing uh, one. I'm doing one. So okay. <laughs> I'm doing one in-person event for my book launch in Brooklyn. Unless like it gets canceled in the next week. I mean, part of me is like wondering like what's going to happen, but, yeah. um, but I ordered the special napkins. I'm planning for the in-person. <laughs> I might be doing an in-person event in September. So if you're watching this and it's not yet September, you can go to my website and see, um, that would be in Chicago. I'm hoping that will be in person, but it's kind of like, we're going to wait and see, and it might be on zoom, mm-hmm. but I am, I am physically flying to Chicago. So I'm hoping that it actually happens. Okay. And so this event, I think it, is it next Tuesday? So it's possible that this, when people are listening to this, it will have happened already, but do you want to mention what, what it is? Oh, in case sure. If you want it's to at check Powerhouse it out? Arena in Dumbo at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, August 10th. And I'm actually going to be in conversation with Allie Kriegsman, who is a girl boss, but I say that with like a wink. Um, she's a female founder of a company, and she wrote a book uh, about being a female founder called How to Build a Goddamn Empire. But she has a really... <laughs> She has a really smart, nuanced take on the whole girl boss thing. She's a really smart person, and, and I know we're going to have a really, a really hot conversation. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to that. Um, okay, so anything else you want to say about girl bosses or poems or any other topic we've touched upon? Uh, Michael Jordan versus LeBron, uh, which is which is better? <laughs> before we before we wrap it up. No, I don't. Th- I don't think I have. A, I I'm. In, I don't think I'm informed enough to make a call. Um, to make a call on that. That's a, that's a hot topic. I don't want to turn off the audience. So <laughs> yeah, um, some things are too controversial to touch. Okay. So the, so the book, um, what to miss when, um, to miss a, when? a book of, of poetry, um, you know, the sort of thing that, um, you know, the culture needs more poetry dead, fewer, <laughs> fewer other, uh, sort of the negative things we've been, we've been discussing in the second half of this conversation, you know, less, cheap enamel cookware that is in bright colors and more poems. That'd be a better world. Uh, so thank So Lee, thank you for, for coming on. So if people want to, so people should check out the book, they can follow you on Twitter. They can find me on Twitter where I live. And my handle is rhymes with B B E E. They can find me there too. It's, uh, R E A C W and okay. Well, thank Well, thank you again. Um, I enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed the book. People should check it out. Um, Thank you. And thanks to all of our our viewers and listeners. And we'll see you next time.